0: This sermon on Jonah 3 was preached by guest speaker Kyle Holton on Sunday, October 9th, 2022 at Sovereign Grace Church. We're looking at the book of Jonah here. This is what most Americans would perceive as Nineveh. And As I preached this sermon to our home church last year, one of the clarion calls I believe that the Lord is giving us was, was, Don't board that ship to Tarshish, whether it's North Texas or Montana or or Northern Arizona. The Lord has called you here to this city to proclaim the gospel to our neighbors in this city, not to run from it. Just because you don't live in Southern California doesn't mean that this passage has less relevance to you. No, 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 no. I think quite the opposite. So, with that, we're going to open up our Bibles to, to Jonah 3, and, and we'll do so in conventional ways we do in Santa Ana by saying, damos la bien- bienvenida a todos los idiomas y culturas porque Dios nos ha recibido a todos en Cristo. We say, hey, we, we welcome people of all languages and cultures because, not because, it's, not because it's fashionable right now, but because God has welcomed us all in Christ. God has welcomed us all to, to gather in here and to hear his word proclaimed. And Lord willing, we will encounter Jesus. And we will hear his word proclaimed. Now, before we do read the, the text, let me just give you a little bit of an introduction of what has happened before Jonah chapter 3. So, jo- Jonah, it's a book about a man with bad theology. He, his theology can be summed up as, you get what you deserve, you get what you deserve. So in chapter 1, when God commissions him to go to the wicked city of Nineveh to warn them of coming destruction, he wants nothing to do with that job. He, he suspects that maybe God might show them mercy. I don't want it. I would rather see them suffer the consequences of their own living on their own. Leave them to it. And so he conveniently goes to the harbor and finds a ship going to Tarshish in the opposite direction of Nineveh. How convenient. And so he boards that ship. Now, listen, in this story, we, the church, we are Jonah. This story challenges us. And Nineveh, Nineveh represents not just Southern California. Nineveh represents the city that the Lord has called you to. So for this local church, Nineveh is the city of Tucson. This is the city that the Lord has called you to proclaim the wonders of his son Jesus Christ and what he has done to. And and, and our cities, no matter where we live, are starting to look look a little bit more like actual Nineveh as time goes on. And and Tarshish then, Tarshish, listen, is, is any strategy that you and I devise to avoid obediently responding to that call. Okay, so as Jonah flees, God strikes the, the sea and the, and the ship, consequently, with a storm. And, and, and the pagans, the, the, the unbelievers on the ship with him, acknowledge that this is God's doing. That this is God's doing, and they cry out to God. They do what Jonah is still refusing to do. And Jonah, as a result, is thrown overboard, and he goes down to the bottom of the ship, but then eventually goes down to the bottom of the ocean. He hits rock bottom. And in Jonah's mind, his theology is still at work. He's thinking, I'm getting what I deserve. Nineveh deserves what's coming to them and here I am, I've run from God. I deserve this. And he consigns himself to death. But then what happens? God sends a great fish to swallow Jonah up, which is a stroke of god's mercy this is salvation that god has sent to jonah he knows he's been disobedient but god mercifully saved him and this is this is one of the key points in jonah and we're going to come back to this way later in this sermon but remember when god sent that fish that was his mercy toward jonah And after three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, God speaks to the fish, and the fish spits him out, which is a resurrection of sorts, new life, which then brings us to chapter 3. So with that, uh, I think around here we stand when we read God's word, right? Let's let's stand. It's a mere ten verses in this chapter, so would you read along with me in Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, The second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a, a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh, Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Go ahead and be seated. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, open our our ears and our eyes, posture our hearts in humility before you, to receive your word this morning. To acknowledge where we might be reflected in this passage in a way that may be a little bit uncomfortable, but but to see you in the radiance of your mercy. And to be changed by that mercy, to be compelled by that mercy, to be encouraged by that mercy. As we see it, as we see it as a mercy Available in full to us through your Son Jesus Christ and to our neighbors as well. So it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So so chapter three, it's it's a parallel of chapter one. So, so Moses, or so Moses, so Jonah has been resurrected, as it were. He's, he's got a, a a new life. But then in in Verse 2, God recommissions, just like he did in chapter 1, verse 2. And then in verse 3, Jonah rose to respond to the Lord. And in chapter 1, he rose to flee. But in chapter 3, he rises to be obedient and to go into the city, just like like he responded in chapter 1, verse 3. But this time, he actually obeys God. He goes to Nineveh, and he preaches. And also, here in chapter 3, Jonah has a confrontation with pagans, just like he did on the boat. But in both instances, in both instances, he looks worse than the pagans. In both instances, they respond better than he does. Both instances show that he doesn't know how to talk to or relate to the unbelievers that God has put in his path. So, so I, I'm the senior pastor of Cross of Grace Church of Santa Ana, but I'm also bivocational, so I have a, a day job that I work full-time throughout the week. And in this day job, one of the things that I do probably twice a week is go to networking events. I don't know if any of you have jobs where you have to go to networking events. But I, I, con- I consider myself an extrovert, but I loathe networking events because there are events where you've got, say, 100 people standing around, and I know none of them. And, and, and the whole purpose of these events is so that everybody can get business from one another. It's, it's, it's very transactional. So nobody actually wants to have a meaningful conversation with, with anybody. But I always seem to get there when everybody's al- already in a conversation. And I hate that moment. Because I look around and I, I think I'm the only person who's standing alone. And this panic rises in my heart because I realize that if I'm going to have a conversation... I'm going to have to butt into somebody else's conversation that's already happening. But if I don't do that, I'm going to be visibly the only person standing around with my phone and nothing else and, and having nobody else to talk to. But then if I do start a conversation with somebody, they're not actually interested in having a meaningful conversation, so it's going to end in like two or three minutes. And the whole co- process starts over again. And I have got to go through this for like an hour, an hour and a half. The panic cycle just starts all over again. Now, you have to understand, Jonah was a devout Jew. He, he was a prophet called of God. So in the modern day, he would have been the Sunday preacher, he would have been blogging on the Gospel Coalition, he would have been, a, he would have been as good of a small group leader as Scott McLeod. It's debatable, right. I don't know. But put him into context with a bunch of wicked pagans a bunch of unbelievers and he was worse than me at a networking event but it's what god has called him to friends if you live in the city of tucson you're here because god has called you here god has put you here on purpose it is not an accident that this is the city that you are in God has purposefully put you in your city. And and you might love your church. In fact, you probably do. I hope you do. And, and, And you're fine being called to your city because you love your church. And that's the main reason why you love your city. But if Jonah is symbolic of us, the local church, then Jonah 3 tells us. Jonah 3 tells us that you exist for more than your Sunday gathering. You, you exist for more than, than the rhythms and patterns of, of the local church. You exist for more than fellowship with believers. What, what, what I mean is that the, the rhythms of church life, they, they are a tremendous means of grace. Small groups, fellowship with, with believing friends, our Sunday gathering, these are all good things. sinful people have this interesting penchant for turning good things and twisting them. In other words, we can, we can use fellowship with believers like, like it's a ship to Tarshish. As a means to flee from and hide away from the mission that the Lord has called us to in our city. let's be honest, the, the best among us, the best among us are hardly better than Jonah. My, my wife and I, we've been good friends with two non-Christian men in, in our neighborhood. Uh, we'll, we'll call them Mike and Steve. They're, they're married to one another. They, they live together. We have them over to our house about once a month for dinner, and they, they've become They've become really good friends. We ran uh, the Ragnar Socal race with them back in in April, and the Lord has blessed us with having just building this really great relationship with them. But for the first, gosh, half year of building this relationship, I was terrified of having a a real conversation with them about talking to them about what they what they believed and and moving the conversation toward. A conversation about Jesus and what, what God requires of them as, as, as human beings and the accountability that, that they live with before their Creator. So long as the conversation stayed surface level, I was comfortable. But as soon as I thought about having a real conversation with them, that same networking panic rose in my throat. And I would flee. And I don't think that's that uncommon. Listen, our churches exist for more than our Sunday gathering, but but when we consider what what that entails on a personal level, the panic rises in our throats. God has you in your city for more than Sunday mornings, but, but, but you might have no unbelieving friends. And the thought of making some with people whose morals and convictions and habits are so different from yours... Well, you just want to run, run to Tarshish. Or, or, or you're fine mixing it up with, with believers, but in your heart of hearts, you are terrified of telling them about Jesus and, and what God requires of their lives, just like me. Or you've read, or you've read just enough headlines from a distance, and you've reached the conclusion that this increasingly blue state, people like your pothead neighbor and your raging feminist neighbor They're just going to get what they deserve. They're going to get what's coming to them. And maybe that's not something you would want to admit publicly. But in your heart, maybe that's your disposition. Friends, we need God's mercy and patience for ourselves as we consider our call to our cities. And there's good news here in Jonah 3. More than anything else, it teaches us about a God whose mercy exceeds your wildest imaginations. A a God merciful enough to save your neighbors despite your leanings to Tarshish. And a God merciful enough to use you even if you've begun to exist for Sunday mornings alone. So with that, we've got three, three simple points from Jonah 3 today. Three points that are also directive for us. They tell something about how to respond to this chapter. The first is go into your city. The second is speak to your city. And thirdly, oh, I can't wait till we get here behold God's mercy in your city. But for all that, we need to go into our cities. So so Jonah, he does respond, and and he finally arrives at the border of Nineveh. And he goes a day's journey into this city that is three days' journey in breadth. Now, the average human can walk about 60 miles a day. So this is, especially by ancient standards, a massive city. We can assume it's about 180 miles wide. And Jonah goes a full day's journey all the way into the center of Nineveh. He doesn't just call out from the border. He goes into the heart of the city. You see, in Santa Ana, it's very different than it is here in Tucson geographically. We're surrounded by cities. There are 34 total cities in, in Orange County. And, and, and many in our church live in Santa Ana. We have encouraged people from day one since we planted this church to move into the neighborhood where our church is to make the church's neighbors your neighbors. And it's been a hard call because housing is really, 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 really hard in Santa Ana. But nevertheless, we've said, move in faith. Move, move into the neighborhood where our church is. Make the church's neighbors your neighbors. But then th- there, are, there are many who live outside of Santa Ana and well outside the neighborhood where, where our church is. But, but we're, we're constantly encouraging them don't stay on the border. Don't call out from the border. Know, know what's happening in the city. Attend community events. Know the, the needs and the hurts and the suffering of your neighbors within the city. And move yourself, actually, physically move yourself to go and meet those needs. Volunteer at nonprofits. Get, get, get involved in the local schools. Don't call out from the border. But consider this question. In whatever way it might look like for, for you in Tucson, in a very different kind of city than, than our city, are you standing on the border in Tucson? Are, are, are you just calling out from the border but reticent to, to move yourself toward your neighbor's? Whether that's the neighbors surrounding Sovereign Grace Church Tucson here on La Canyada and Ina, or your own neighbors, are you standing on the border, friends? There is a there is a physical, tangible nature to what God has called us to—to use our feet and to walk into whatever messes exist in our neighborhoods and and going into your city, it is a messy proposition. I can guarantee you that. It will not be orderly and clean and simple. It will be messy. But if you read the other minor prophets, though the message is directed to Israel most of the time, God is confronting idolatrous worship within in Israel, but he's also confronting oppression of the poor, neglect of the foreigner. He, here in Nineveh, chapter 1, verse 2, God commands Jonah to speak against the violence of the Ninevites. And violence has victims. God is concerned for the plight of the suffering in your city. He's concerned for the plight of the suffering in your city. And here's the thing. From the perspective of the unbeliever around you, when they're looking at us as Christians, they are expecting you to show kindness toward the suffering and the marginalized of your city. That is is your expectation. That is the expectation of your neighbors. As they look at you as a Christian, they are expecting you to move toward the suffering in your city. Author Tim Keller says, "When When the world only sees us evangelizing those outside the church, they don't see it as the greatest act of love we could possibly do. They just see us being selfish, trying to increase the size of our congregations, budgets, and influence. Now, while that might not be true, that could be the perception. Think of Jonah 1, the the ship's captain, in the midst of this raging storm that's about to sink the ship, finds Jonah at the bottom of the ship doing what? Sleeping. And he's flabbergasted. He can tell this is a religious man, but why would this religious man not use the resources of his faith to save the other people on board, or at least to contribute, to help out? When he saw him down in the ship's hold, he said, what do you mean, you sleeper? It was one of the greatest phrases in the Old Testament. I love it. What do you mean, you sleeper? It makes no sense. You're a religious man. You should be using the resources of, of, of your God to help and meet the tangible needs of those around you. And when we are actually pouring ourselves out, our time, yes, our money, our love, into the lives of the suffering and the poor, oddly enough, that is when they see with their eyes the gospel embodied. You you don't believe like they do? Yet they see you pouring yourself out for them, using the resources of your faith to help their estate. You're impoverishing yourself in order that they might be brought up. That's when they see the love of Christ. And this is the very image of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, isn't it? 2 Corinthians 8-9 describes Jesus this way. It says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. This is the very character of Christ. Tim Keller continues on. He says, am I saying that loving your neighbor in other ways than evangelism is more important than evangelism? No. No. But it is an inseparable, though lesser, responsibility of the church. So, if you are standing on the border, If you do find yourself standing on the border, let me give you this encouragement from another author named Colin Smith. He said it so well. He said, don't confuse providence with permission. When Jonah saw that ship to Tarshish, he might have looked at that ship and gone, huh, maybe God put that there. Maybe God meant for me to board this ship and go to Tarshish. You know, I probably should get on and and head that way. That would be con- confusing providence, confusing the existence of a ship with permission to board that ship. So if you do find yourself standing on the border, if you do find yourself fleeing to Tarshish in some way, don't, don't confuse the, the ease of standing on the border with permission to remain on the border. If your calendar is full of the church calendar, don't confuse that with permission to retreat from your city, from the the messiness of your neighbors. If you don't have any unbelieving friends, don't confuse that with God giving you permission not to move toward the lost with mercy and compassion in your city. If if you live outside the, the, the central hub of the ministry of this church, don't confuse that with God giving you permission to not go into your city and extend the love of Christ to those neighbors. Now, this isn't a call to relieve all the suffering in your city. This isn't a social, social justice charge saying we're going to renew the whole city. No, no we, don't have, we don't have lofty, unrealistic ambitions like that. But it's a call to just go, to Start when you leave this service today, determine what it would look like for you to step beyond the border, to go into your city. Now, you're called to go into your city toward your neighbors, but also, very importantly, to speak to your neighbors. That brings us to the second point here. Speak to your city. Finally, after two commissionings, a voyage to Tarshish, a storm at sea, a three-day retreat inside of a fish, and a three days or a day's journey into Nineveh. Jonah finally preaches to Nineveh. And it is the most pitiful, bare minimum excuse for a sermon that has ever been preached in the history of sermons. Look, look down at, at the text in chapter three, verse four. <laughs> He says, yet 40 days, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. It's, it's a sermon which in the original Hebrew is five words. Five words. And you can, you can just imagine Jonah going, okay, I'm done. We don't know why he preached so short. We don't know why he preached only Judgment. <laughs> there, was no, there was no offer of salvation in here. There was no offer of mercy. It was 40 days. If you don't repent in 40 days, you're done. We don't know why. And, and the author here doesn't explain why. What we do know is that he spoke. And that's the point. That's the point. He spoke. God sent him to speak, and he spoke. In, in our cities, God has called us to proclaim his message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the point isn't how well we're speaking it. Oh, we should aspire to, to, to proclaim it with, with authenticity and with clarity and with precision. But the point is that you speak. If, if your lack of confidence in your ability to articulate well the gospel of Jesus Christ is preventing you from speaking at all in the first place you might be missing the point. Around June of 2020, our associate pastor, Jeff Schleter, and I went to a, a meeting of Santa Ana pastors. This was three months into the pandemic. And, and everybody was kind of on their high horse saying, we should do this, we should do that, we should do this. And one pastor of a, of a fairly influential church in, in our city, he stood up and he said, you know, guys... Our people know the gospel. We stand up every Sunday and we preach God's word, and they know it already. We need to stop doing so much preaching and start doing. And Jeff and I heard that, and we just went, Hold the phone. Hold on. Now, nothing is wrong as we've established. With getting out into our cities and getting our hands dirty. We, we should. But there is everything wrong with the suggestion that we've filled the tank of gospel proclamation to capacity. There's everything wrong with that. Because if we cease to proclaim the gospel within and outside of our church, we cease to be the church at all. That is what distinguishes the church as the church. This is what distinguishes the church from the community organization down the street. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let me just say, as, as an aside, how, how much I respect and admire every one of you and the leaders of this church, Tim and Derek and, and Tom, for, for you deacons, for you small group leaders, for faithfully, And all glory to God, this is his doing, his faithfulness, but his faithfulness expressed through you for faithfully proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ because there are few doing it with clarity. And it can neither be assumed, and it's not natural. So one of the primary lessons I've learned as a church planter is that gospel centrality does not just happen, actually quite the opposite. Our our pension is to drift away from it. And to come to conclusions like, we already know enough, we need to just hit the streets more to the exclusion of gospel proclamation. So if I were you, I would praise God for what the Lord is doing in this church in keeping this church centrally anchored to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not a common thing. It is not something that we can just assume. We praise God for it. But when it comes to our responsibility to go and proclaim the gospel, to speak to our neighbors. It it can be all well and good, and we can nod our heads as, as we're saying, we, we should go speak. But when it becomes me, when I face the music that fundamental to my Christian identity is speaking the gospel, it gets a little more real then. But if not you, then who? And that was the dilemma that I, that I faced with, with Mike and Steve, which, again, it's not their real names. But after about six months of having them over for dinner every month, I just thought, gosh, who else is going to tell them about Jesus? Yes, this may be the watershed conversation in our relationship, and we may have no relationship after this. But if not me, then who? And so we did have a conversation one night when there was a... a sort of a convenient inroads to that conversation, and I was sweating in my my shirt, thinking, man, this this is going to blow up. And isn't that our expectation usually, by the way, in gospel conversations? The expectation, this is not going to go well. And then, then the Lord surprises us like he did in this conversation. And they responded well. They talked about what they believe. That we, we had spent enough time building a relationship that they knew that this conversation was coming from a place of love and respect. And they were able to reciprocate respect. They said, yeah, we don't believe what, what you guys believe, but, but that's okay. And now we know that when they do go through this life-altering tragedy down the road, whatever that might be, or, or when they do begin asking questions about life and death and things that really matter, maybe there's something the Lord will direct them back to and say, hey, we want, to, we want to talk about this again, if you're okay with it. Friend, God had one person in mind to speak to Nineveh. And though every Christian is called to proclaim the message of God's mercy, God has called you to your neighbors, to your city. You may be no good at it. That's okay. What you, what you speak may be hardly better than what Jonah spoke to Nineveh. But that's okay. But why is that okay? It's okay because of the staggering mercy of God. And that brings us to our third point, the third directive from Jonah 3. Behold God's mercy toward your city. We don't, we don't yet know the full scope of Jonah's motivation. That's going to be revealed in Jonah chapter 4, and I would encourage you to read Jonah chapter 4. We don't know why he ran. We don't know why he said so little, why he preached only judgment. What we can deduce at this point, at the very least, is that Jonah did not expect Nineveh to repent. He preached judgment like a kid yelling cannonball at, at, at a summer pool. At, like, when, when a kid yells cannonball, it's not a warning, is it? It's it's a proclamation of a foregone conclusion. They're going, hey, you old people, yet a few seconds and your summer afternoon is about to be ruined. Right? They're not saying, hey, everybody, I'm I'm about to make a big splash. If you could just take your time, move out of the way, and then once you're ready, I'll I'll jump in the pool. Jonah was yelling cannonball. Cannonball, God's judgment, is coming. And, and, And Jonah misunderstood God's judgment and God's wrath and we have that same propensity too he came in announcing a foregone conclusion of God's wrath he came into Nineveh saying here it comes Jonah was a prophet and he should have known from his prophetic contemporaries that when God's judgment is proclaimed it is almost invariably followed by mercy. And that is the case in the whole of Scripture. Proclamation of judgment often precedes God's acting in mercy. In fact, in the book of Hosea, God names the daughter of Hosea's unfaithful wife, and this wife is is meant to symbolize Israel, unfaithful Israel, he says, Hosea, name your daughter no mercy. As a, as a symbol, that the, the fruit of Israel's unfaithfulness, the offspring of Israel's unfaithfulness will be no mercy. The offspring of Israel's unfaithfulness, my unfaithful bride, will be my judgment. But that warning was not a foregone conclusion of judgment. But in itself, the announcement was a stroke of mercy. A, a, a severe mercy, if you will, intended to prick the conscience and, and, and lead them to repentance. And in Hosea 2.23, anticipating Israel's repentance, God says of Israel, In that day, I will have mercy on no mercy. I will have mercy on, on that offspring whom I said will be called No mercy. Deserve deserved to not receive mercy. But in that day, I will have mercy on them. In other words, until judgment occurs, all of God's, all of life is God's mercy. Until it actually comes, all of life is God's mercy. It represents his patience. It is God's mercy that he delays judgment, that he gave Nineveh 40 days. It's God's mercy that he hasn't yet brought judgment on our neighbors. It's God's mercy that he would move anyone to repentance, which is what happened to Nineveh. And what Jonah had likely not for one second actually expected. Nowhere in Scripture will you find a response to preaching or a prophetic message like this. Every living human, verse 5, from the, from the greatest to the least, everyone repented and believed God. Including the government. Think about that in modern terms. Jonah said, here comes this cannonball of God's judgment, you wicked, disgusting people. And every one of them Every last one of them got out of the way. Picked up their books and said, I'm out of here. And they got out of the way. You know how in movies when a, when a big bomb goes off, you see a huge shockwave spread, spread through and knocking everybody down? How I picture this scene in my mind is Jonah speaking five words and a shockwave of repentance spreading through the city. Having gone a full day into the center of the city, dropped a bomb of an announcement of God's judgment, and a shockwave of God's mercy leading to repentance exploded out from him. And then having repented, the greatest stroke of, of God's mercy then appears. The king says in verse 9, who knows? I love that. Who knows? Maybe Maybe this God will actually be a merciful God and, and be merciful to us and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And despite all their violence and their murder and their perversions, their oppression, their hatefulness, their thievery, their outright disgusting evil, verse 10, God relented. God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Listen, the brevity of Jonah's sermon and the sheer size and evil of Nineveh are intended to teach us one thing. Romans 9, 15. God will show mercy on whom he will show mercy. The wickedness and the depravity of any unbeliever you know will have no bearing on God's ability to show them mercy. The quality of your ability to, to articulate the gospel of Jesus Christ, the confidence with which you approach those conversations, will have no bearing on who God chooses to show mercy. God gave mercy to Nineveh because he wanted to give them mercy. Flat out. End of story. That's it. He wasn't limited by how sinful they had become. He wasn't limited by Jonah. He wasn't limited by the quality or length of preaching. He wasn't wasn't even limited by Jonah's angry, resentful heart when they did repent. Friends, let's be entirely honest with ourselves. How much do you expect that God will show your neighbor's mercy? How much do you actually expect that God will show your neighbor's mercy? And that's one of the primary questions that the Holy Spirit is asking us through the book of Jonah. If not the primary question, how much do we actually expect and celebrate the possibility that God will show our neighbor's mercy? But who knows, maybe maybe you say, well, yeah, but, but... I've never seen God move a whole city to repentance before. How do I know that this wasn't just one instance where, where God decided to be this merciful? I can tell you how you know. The cross of Jesus Christ is how you know. The cross of Christ assures us that being merciful is not just what God does sometimes. It is who he is. It is at the very core of the nature of our triune God to be merciful. Ephesians 2 says, you were dead. Before, you, before he saved you, you were dead in your sins, following Satan, carrying out your sinful passions. You were children of wrath. Does that sound familiar? That sounds like Nineveh. It says just like Nineveh. We're a bunch of former Ninevites. So if you say, yeah, well, I've never seen God move a whole city to repentance. Yes, you have. I'm looking out on, on a whole room of people that God has moved to repentance. Who He has miraculously moved to repentance. People, I'm sure you had relatives and friends who thought, surely never that person will come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And here you are. Here you are. Ephesians 2:4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness in Christ Jesus. Mercy is who he is. Those verses said in another way, he sent his son to give mercy to all who would believe in him, so so that in the coming ages his mercy might be known. So that his mercy might be known through you. He has made His mercy known through Christ, and we, we should believe that He will show mercy to our neighbors through the proclamation of the gospel. Oh we have every reason to believe that. But and let me close here. We should believe. He will show mercy to his neighbors. We should believe he'll show mercy to us. And this is where we come around full circle here. Because perhaps this morning you have found yourself standing at the border of your city. Perhaps you've found yourself fleeing to Tarshish, looking to hide from the mission that he's called you. Perhaps over the, over the last three weeks, You've had similar convictions. And you're thinking to yourself, I I know, I know I need to go. I know I need to speak. But those aren't the first things that you need to do. The very first thing that you need to do is to cast yourself on the mercy of God. Look at Jonah. He only responded faithfully even though his heart remained embittered, he only responded faithfully once he had received the mercy of God. And we're intended to see that in Jonah, that his experience of God's mercy, saving him from his own sure death, which he deserved, compelled him to then go and to speak. He will be patient with you. Through the very same Savior Whom he saves our neighbors through, he will be merciful to you. Through the very same Savior who saved you initially and gave you mercy, reconciling you to himself, he will be merciful to you as you stand on the border and as you flee to Tarshish. And you may think, well, yeah, I get what I I get what I deserve. That's bad theology. Because of Jesus Christ, that is bad theology. If you're standing on the border, cast yourself yourself on the mercy of God. Behold his mercy and his patience toward you and let that compel you to go and to speak, expecting that he will show the same mercy to your neighbors as you yourself have been shown. Friends, we we exist for far more than Sunday gathering. And my prayer is that, is that I'll hear reports as I talk to, to Tim and Derek and to Tom and to others of you out there of, of how the Lord is, is scattering this church into the city of Tucson. But before we scatter, we behold an experience and are refreshed in the mercy of God. We exist for more than Sunday mornings. We exist to magnify the mercy of God our sickness. In Santa Anna and in Tucson to the glory of his name. Would you pray with me?